This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. Our senior pastor, Ron, is on sabbatical, so I get the privilege of talking with you this morning. If you haven't done so yet, let me invite you to open up your programs and take out the New Life notes that you'll find in there. That way you can follow along and jot down some notes if you'd like to. As you get that out, let's go ahead and start with a prayer. Father, as we, uh, as we just sang, Lord, to give us the nations, I'm just impressed with all the people around this world who are, who are hurting God, and I, I pray that you would bring comfort. Lord, whether there's people in this, sitting in this room who are in distress or on the other sides of the globe, God, would you come and would you comfort and bring your hope and your peace into their life? Lord, I pray that you'd teach us this morning through your word and encourage us by your presence. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are wrapping up a series that we've been going through for the last couple months, and it's called Pursuing Spiritual Excellence. And we've been looking at a number of mindsets or attitudes and behaviors that if we incorporate them into our life, it propels us forward in our pursuit of God. It helps us in the spiritual journey that we're called to to live in and to to pursue. And so we've been looking at characteristics and qualities from the life of Daniel. Daniel wrote one of the books in the Old Testament, which bears his name. And so we've been going for the last couple months through this book of Daniel and extracting the characteristics and the qualities in his life and seeing how they can apply to ours and how, as I said, that we can grow spiritually and mature spiritually and pursue God. So, <clears throat> excuse me. It's, uh, today we are going to be la- looking at the, the last part of this series. One other characteristics that we need to incorporate into our life in this spiritual journey. And it's called looking ahead. It's being able to, to look ahead and to plan for the future. It's being able to to look into the future with hope regardless of what the current circumstances are in our lives. See, the Bible teaches that we are not just flesh and bone, but that we're spirit as well. And because we're spirit, that means that we're going to live forever. And so we've got to look at life and we've got to look at our situations in the context of eternity. We've got to look at life with an eternal perspective, if you will. In other words, it's, it's looking at and understanding our everyday circumstances, our struggles and our joys and our disappointments and our happiness and our successes in the context of eternity and everything that eternity implies and what it means. Before we uh, read from our passage from, from Daniel this morning, I'd like, to, um, I'd like to start out by making a couple observations. The first one is this, that as human beings, we are incurable predictors. We like to try to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen next week, what's going to happen next month. How many of you would like to have some idea of what's going to happen in the future? Yeah, sure you would. We all would. To think about what's going to happen. And and so we have this incurable search within us to know what's going to happen. And we've got it down to a science. We try to predict everything from the weather, right? We have this sophisticated radar all the way down to a little groundhog that we watch, trying to figure out what the weather's going to be like. There's all kinds of sports, writer, sports writers every year who try to predict who's going to win the World Series or the Super Bowl. There's the Stanley Cup for the hockey fans in the crown. Stockbrokers, right? Got a whole lot of people on Wall Street who would love to be able to predict what's going to happen tomorrow or next week as they as they buy their futures. There's this occupation with us to know what's going to happen in the future, and we try to figure it out, and we try to predict it, and we try to anticipate it. I was uh, I was reading John Ortenberg. Actually, I was reading a message that he he wrote about the Book of Daniel, and he talked about in Las Vegas. There's actually a bookie or an odds maker who's put on the, uh, the odds on who the next cardinal is going to be to be the pope. Which cardinal is going to be the next pope? So you can go to Las Vegas and bet on who the next pope is going to be. Well, that was a clever idea. So we have this incurable, unquenchable hunger to know about the future. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to see the movie that's entitled Life or Something Like It. 
You guys heard of that? It wasn't a real popular movie, but it's this kind of simple romantic comedy. And the main premise is about this guy, this homeless man who happens to be a prophet. Someone who's able to look into the future and see what's going to happen and, and be able to share with people what's going to happen in the future. So I thought it might be fun to take a look at what would it be like if one of these Old Testament prophets lived today. Take a watch with me. will be obstructed by a three-car accident late this afternoon. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Highway 405 will be obstructed by a three-car accident late this afternoon. Continued turmoil in the technology sector all next week. Prophet Jack. Jack, how are you? Remember me? What is he doing? I don't know. I think he knows him. Yeah, he would. <laughs> Glad you dressed for the occasion. You're doing a story on a homeless guy and you wear a designer suit. Don't be a wanker, Pete. How exactly do you know this person? Overheard him yelling about a couple of stock tips. Made a little coin. And still couldn't afford a haircut. Jack? Hello? Hi. Lady Carrie. Listen, I... I don't really believe all this stuff, but I'm up for this really big job. Another job I've been dreaming of my whole life, and I was just wondering, you know, what do you, what do you see? Am I gonna get... No. All right, Lenny, we got speed. Tonight at 8, the Seahawks and Broncos. Who's going to win? One man knows. Let's see if he's telling. Prophet Jack, noted street savant, and a little local flavor in a town that could use a little more. Jack, what's with the crate? I come from a long line of prophets, mm -hmm. anchorites. My pedestal elevates me closer to the voice of God, allowing me to heal the huddled masses with my visions. Why is it always the huddled masses? Do we huddle? Well, I'll tell you who does. The Seattle Seahawks. Nice Jack, tonight the Hawks are on a special Thursday night edition of football, and they're playing the 3-0 Broncos. Tell us, Jack, is it finally Denver's year, or are the Hawks going to open up a big old can of butt-whooping? The Seahawks will win, 1913. Yeah? Well, don't be joking now, Jack. You'll break our little hearts. Prophets don't joke. Okay. <laughs> Any other hot tips? Tomorrow morning is going to hail. Well, the local meteorologist said we'll have more blue skies tomorrow. You, you sure you don't want to tweak that frequency a little, Jack? How, how old are you now? Maybe you're not... You know, hearing the old voice of God so good anymore. Hmm? I hear it. I hear it loud and clear. Okay. Well, you heard him, folks. The Seahawks are going to win, and tomorrow it's going to hail. And next Thursday you're going to die. I'm sorry. I didn't ask for the power. I find out you were up to this, and I will never speak to you as long as I live. Yeah, and that would be what? About a week or so? Tonight, 
Seahawks over the Broncos. By six, take the points. <laughs> take the points. Oh, the ability to look ahead. The ability to know and prepare for what the future holds. Well, if you want to know what happens in the future of that movie, you're going to have to rent it. But you could probably, most of you, guess what's going to happen in the movie. But let's get back to Daniel and see if we can figure out how this series is going to wrap up. As we've been walking through the, the book of Daniel, we've seen the history of, of Daniel's life, right? Going from a young man who was taken into captivity, taken into exile, and, and made a slave until he worked his way up, along with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they became leaders in the land. And then he saw his friends thrown into the fire, and he saw God's protection and God's deliverance. Even Daniel, we got to see, experience the, the inside of the lion's den. We've seen the spiritual journey of Nebuchadnezzar and the demise of his son, Belshazzar. But at the end of the book of Daniel, God wants us to know more than just about Daniel's life. God wants us to know some about the future. God wants us to be able to, to look ahead and to see not only what's been, but what's going to, to come. And so God gives Daniel several dreams or several visions, and he has Daniel record them in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that Ron took his sabbatical just so that he wouldn't have to tackle this message. But I'm thinking the timing was a little bit coincidental. You see, the last six chapters of Daniel, the remainder of the book, are part of what's called the sorry, I can say it, part of the apocalyptic literature, or for those who have trouble saying it, the prophetic literature. It's part of the prophetic literature in Scripture, and it's literature that deals with future and end times events. And oftentimes, this literature deals. As it deals with the future, it uses a lot of imagery and it uses a lot of symbols. And frankly, these symbols and this imagery oftentimes can be very confusing and a little bit strange. Now, some people, some people claim that they've got it all figured out, that they can read it and they can understand exactly what all the imagery means. I, however, make no such boast. As a matter of fact, as I read this, I'm mostly lost. So with that word of confidence from your teacher, <laughs> let's go ahead and take a look at the text. Daniel 7, 1 through 8. Earlier, earlier during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he laid in his bed. He wrote down the dreams, and this is what he saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. So far, so good. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the other. The first beast was like a lion with eagle wings. And as I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being. And it was given a human mind. Then I saw a second beast. And it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side and it had the ribs in its, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying, get up, devour the flesh of many people. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared and it looked like a leopard. It had four wings, it had four bird wings on its back and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. And in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast. Terrifying, dreadful, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts. It had ten horns, and as I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. Everything clear so far? And Ron's hiding in the chairs. Well, before we tackle this verse and try to make some sense of it, I want to say this. You know, the Bible always gives us 
exactly what we need. The Bible always tells us exactly what we need, but it doesn't always give us what we'd like to know. For example, important Christian concepts such as salvation and forgiveness through Christ, they're very clear and very easy to understand as you read the, as you read the scriptures, and there's not a whole lot of interpretation that you have to give to them. But other things, however, as the interpretation of imagery and the details of future events, they're often up for debate. They often can be confusing and and harder to understand. And there's not always as much agreement. So as we begin to look at these verses, let me point out, first of all, which I think is is maybe a a wrong way to, to approach these type of scriptures, though it's often done, and it's this. The wrong way to, to approach a, a scripture such as this is to look at the piece, the beast and the images in the chapter and try to play this, this kind of guessing game, trying to figure out who the beasts are and what they represent and what current organization or past organization or what nation or which you know, national world power they represent. See, oftentimes that's what's done as we approach this kind of scripture. We try to figure out and, uh, what this all represents and that's nothing new. It's been done pretty much since the time Daniel wrote this book. It was going on a long time ago when the ten kings of the Greek empire were established. People began to think, well, is that the ten horns? And then later on with Napoleon, Napoleon appointed ten kings to rule different areas of his kingdom. And people of that time were saying, look, those are the ten kings and those are the ten horns and we must be in the end times. Others have suggested that The ten horns represent NATO. Back when I was younger, people were saying that they stood for the Europe common market, the European common market that was coming together. And it looked like there was going to be ten different groups that were going to make up this market. And people were saying, my goodness, if it gets to ten, it's the end times, and everything's going to come crashing in, all the wheels are going to fall off. People just continued to look around and, and tried to guess and tried to figure out what the horns represented. See, the problem with looking at the Bible this way is that you can go around looking at any political organization or you can go around looking at any groups of nations and say, once you see 10, there it is. It's got 10 of them. Those must be the horns and it's the end time that we're in. Speaking of that, isn't 10 the number of advisors that Hillary Clinton has in her campaign? No. I'm kidding. It's a joke. Joke. But you can see the problem, right? People have been trying for centuries to match up which beast goes with which horn and which country and which ruler. And every time they do it, and every time they start to argue about it, and every time they predict that the end is coming and it doesn't happen, then Christians, and more importantly, the message of Christ, loses credibility with those who are watching and those who are listening. I want you to understand that as as I share some thoughts and some ideas about this passage, I I want you to know it's it's my perspective. It's it's one perspective. There are well-intentioned, well-meaning Christians who disagree on the best way to interpret or the best way to teach about what's talked about in Daniel. I just find that the the approach of trying to to guess at what they, they represent is not the most efficient way of understanding what God wants to convey through this text. This style of writing, this prophetic literature, literature, it's highly symbolic. And whether it's in Daniel or in Revelation or whether it's throughout the different books of the Bible where this type of writing is used, you need to understand that not all imagery is meant to be taken literally. See, oftentimes there's a blend of meaningful symbolism along with physical realities and we just got to kind of look at the scripture and see what it lends itself to and see what we can make sense of. One of the best ways to approach this type of literature is to to look at it in the context. To look at who was writing it and who was he writing to. What was the context in which it was written? In this case, Daniel was writing to his fellow Jews, the Jews that were with him in exile. Verse 1 says that he had this vision during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign. Do you remember what was going on when King Belshazzar was reigning? 
Right? We remember what's taken place. Nebuchadnezzar, right? He had been a cruel king, but he eventually came and he turned to God and he believed in God, which brought a whole lot of hope to the Jews. Well, now he's dead. And they're now living once again under a king who is not only not God-honoring, but this guy is whacked. This guy is twisted. And God's people are once again in store for this long, difficult time of suffering. And I can only imagine that they were discouraged. That they may have been thinking, what's the use? We're trying to honor God. We're trying to follow God. But we continue to be locked into this bondage, into exile. Is there any reason to keep going? Maybe they were thinking about throwing in the towel. About giving up their faith. Well, it's into this context that Daniel is writing and recounting his vision. Personally, I think first and foremost, the message that Daniel's dream conveys both to them then and to us now, especially in this context of trying to pursue spiritual excellence, is that when we're looking ahead, you must expect serious problems. Lesson one from this text is that looking ahead that we've got to expect in our lives, we're going to face difficult problems. Jesus put it this way. There will, be time, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. In First Peter, it says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through as if it's something strange that was happening to you. It's to be expected. This is the first of two lessons I want to teach you from this text. That as we go forward, that we need to expect serious problems. In this life, we're going to encounter difficulties, sometimes overwhelming difficulties and setbacks in our lives. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) I believe that the images given to Daniel in this version in his vision, rather. I believe these in- images are not intended by God to give us some kind of insider's clue into what's going to happen and so that we can figure out what country is going to do what. I believe, rather, that God gave us these warnings that the days ahead are going to be days that are going to be difficult. That the days that we're going to face in this spiritual journey as we pursue God and as we follow God, they're going to be difficult. And so we need to prepare. We need to prepare physically. We need to be prepared mentally. And most of all, we need to prepare spiritually. We need to prepare if we're going to survive in our spiritual journey. We need to prepare if we're going to thrive in our spiritual journey. See, I see the primary message of Daniel's vision which was meaningful back in the day that he gave it, and it's just as meaningful for us today. I believe it shows through quite clearly through the whole vision, and it's this key understanding that when people in authority use their power and position in defiance of God's will and God's nature, it will have serious consequences in people's life. When people in authority, whatever level of authority when they use their power and then when they use their position in defiance of what God's will is, in defiance of what God's nature is, it will have serious consequences in people's lives. Let's look at our our text. Let's look at a few illustrative examples given by by Daniel. Let's start with verse 5. It says, then I saw a second beast, and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. This is an odd picture. This is a disturbing picture. But what's it mean? At the bear like barbecue? Right? That he needed to floss? What's it mean? What was Daniel trying to convey? What was he trying to say? 
I think it's this. I think he's speaking to the destructiveness of violence and aggression in our world. See, this is a ravenous bear. That's a violent picture. And violence leads to more violence. Hatred leads to more hatred. Killing leads to more killing. Hostility begets hostility. That's not news to us. Right? We see it every day in our papers, on our TV. We read about it in our textbooks. Right? The Holocaust of the Jews, the Serbs and the Bosnias and the Croatians, the Shiites and the Sunnis, the Crips and the Bloods. but we also see it closer to home. We see it within our own hearts. We see it there. Resentment, hostility, unforgiveness. It breeds. It ravages. It's never satisfied. And I think that's what Daniel was warning us about, about this rage that lies in the hearts of all of us. Daniel goes on to describe the second beast with wings. Wings oftentimes in scriptures expresses swiftness. And you know, the speed of evil is amazing. Look at how fast evil can move, how fast evil can get in, how fast, how quickly bitterness can get into a relationship. Think about how speedily resentment can build, how sudden our life can just begin to spiral seemingly out of control, how quickly a friendship or a marriage can be lost, how easily faith can be forfeited. Swiftness of evil and destruction. It says the fourth beast had ten horns. Horns are an image of power. Said the fourth beast had ten horns. That's a lot of horns for one beast. That means that was one strong beast. Verse 8 talks about the horn with a voice. And the voice spoke boastfully and arrogantly. The power of our words. The power of our words to destroy. The power of our words to tear down, to take life from another. Boy, this has been a, a theme throughout this book, the boastful and the, and the arrogance of people and the destructiveness of it. Think of the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar, whose people, who he, who, having people bow down to him. Think of the, the pride of Belshazzar, his pride that went before his fall and before his destruction. Obviously, pride and arrogance and selfishness, obviously, they didn't stop in Daniel's day. And God's warning, I believe, God's message then, as it is now, is that as we pursue God, as that we live out our days in this life, we will be confronted by hostility. We will be confronted by anger. We will be confronted with hurtful and destructive words. And at times, we'll be subject to the misuse of power and authority. We'll be confronted by all these things on our spiritual journey in this life. Both outwardly from others as well as from within. And if we're not prepared, it's a key understanding, if we're not prepared for this, we will not fare well spiritually. If we don't understand what we will have to confront and encounter in this life as we pursue God, if we're not prepared for that, we will not fare well spiritually. We must understand that these things in our life, the angers and the hurtful words and the resentments and the quickness to evil and the bitterness, if they're left unchecked, the consequences of them in our life 
and in the lives of those around us are dire. Look at verse 21. It says, As I watched, the horn was waging war against God's holy people. And was what? What was it doing? It was defeating them. Well, this causes us to ask the question, when did this take place? What is it talking about? Who are those people? Who are God's people that were being defeated? Some people say that they're talking about this is a single event in the future, in the end times. I think it was also a reality in Daniel's time. I think it's a reality today in our time. Think about Daniel. Remember how he had seen war waged against his people, against, the, against Israel, that they were defeated? God's people were defeated. That wasn't supposed to happen. Wait, they got carried off into exile and became slaves. That wasn't supposed to happen. These are God's people. It shook them to the very core of who they were. It shook their faith. Warred against, war against, warring against God's people, God's holy people. Daniel had seen people told to either bow to an idol or die. Again, he saw his friends thrown into the fire. He himself experienced the lion's den because of his faith. These things really happened. They were confronted by the evilness and the hardness of life and these forces. And today, people are being jailed. People are being tortured and killed for their faith in Christ. This is really happening today. See, you and I, we need to understand that historically, the conditions in which you and I live are an anomaly for the Christian faith. This, what we get to experience, what we're this, this season of, of blessing, it's not the norm. There's people around this world who are encountering these things and they're fighting against forces and it seems like they're being overcome. We're tempted to think that when we follow God, life is supposed to be easy, that everything is supposed to go well. We're tempted to think that part of the message of living for God is that the circumstances and the conditions of our life are always going to go well. And if they don't, well, then somebody messed up. We're tempted to think that if we face a serious problem with our health, or with a job, or if a relationship goes south, if we don't have the success that we think we need or that we think we want, then our faith begins to be shaken. And we begin to wonder if God's not keeping up his end of the bargain. So friends, we need to understand. We need to see in Daniel's vision that this is a war. I believe that's Daniel's premise as he's painting these pictures for us and he's sharing with us this dream and this vision that he had with all that was going on. That bottom line, we're engaged in a war. It's not primarily a, a physical war or about physical suffering, though it can be. It's primarily a spiritual war. It's a war to pry men and women away from God, to separate us from God. It went on in Daniel's day and it's going on in our day. It's a war that is waged in the human heart. It's a war that is waged in your heart and my heart. The struggle between living for God and following after God and ignoring God. We've got to understand, and I believe Daniel's trying to point out, that there are forces in this world that are hostile to God. And they're quite powerful and they're very real. Therefore, we can expect opposition. We can expect danger. We can expect suffering and persecution in this life, even as we're on a spiritual journey. 
I believe that whatever else Daniel's vision may convey, at the very core of it, Daniel's trying to convey and to warn us and to encourage us that there is a war and that we must anticipate serious problems so that we're not surprised when they incur in our life. We're not surprised when we encounter them, that we're not tempted in the moment to give up and to abandon our faith. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians. He says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. What is all that? What does that mean? To be honest, I fully don't know what that means. But I know that God God calls us to engage with him. I know that God calls us to be comforted by him. I know that God wants to empower us. I know that God calls us into a relationship with a loving God. So whatever that means, God wants us to be with him and near him so that he can work in our lives and so that he can be with us in the difficult times. Our first lesson was expect serious problems. So here we are. Daniel's sharing this vision and he's talking about all the destruction, all these horrendous pictures on earth. And all of a sudden, we see an abrupt change in the scenery. Daniel goes on, still using a bunch of symbolism and imagery, but he begins to shift from earthly matters, matters of struggles and and war, to describe a heavenly reality. A looking ahead with hope. Let's look at Daniel 7, 9 through 12. He says, I watched that the thrones were put in place and the ancient one or the ancient of days sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend to him. Then the court began in session, and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. Pause there for a moment. The ancient of days, that's God. Have you ever wondered what God is like? Have you ever thought about what does God look like? It reminds me of the old story of the the first grade teacher. She walks up to one of her pupils who's drawing a picture and she says, what are you drawing? And the little girl says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher says, honey, nobody knows what God looks like. To which the little girl replies, just wait. They will in a minute. Fun. But in a sense, that's what Daniel is going to do now. He's going to use imagery and symbols to convey what God is like. He's going to go on in his vision to describe this ancient of days. Now, as we quickly walk through these last couple verses, I want to tell you why that these things that Daniel shows us about God are important to us. It's not just because they tell us more about God. It's because every part of who God is has implications or lessons into how we need to live our lives and how we need to relate to him. In verse 9, Daniel says, I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. You see what's happening right there is these thrones that are being put into place we can only imagine in the, in the heavens. And the ancient one took his seat upon the throne. 
and he prepares to seal the destiny of the world. The stage is set. Daniel is saying that God is getting ready to set things right. The moment in history where God is about to set all things right. The day is going to come in which this world where there's so many horrible things that happen, things we read about every day, things we shake our head about and we wonder, can that ever be made right? Is there any kind of justice out there? How can that stuff continue to go on? But God is sitting on his throne. In this world where there are all kinds of thrones, in this world where there's all kinds of power, where there's political power and there's corporate power and there's financial power and where there's a lot of injustices, but there's another day coming. There's another day coming. And friends, there's a very, very important implication for us. I believe this is huge. Daniel says, justice is coming one day. There is a throne and there is one seated on that throne and he is very wise. He is the ancient of days. So God's gonna sit on his throne and everybody who has ignored God or defied God one day is going to experience justice by God's own hand. But listen and don't miss this because this is the implication for us. I am not to take justice into my own hands. You and I are not called to take justice into our own hands. Let's look at the New Testament here in Romans 12, 17. It says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do that, do a, what's it say? Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Jesus is coming. The ancient of days is sitting in the throne. Some of you have been treated very unfairly. Maybe it was by somebody who sat in a seat of power. Maybe it was your boss. Maybe it was somebody in business. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe somebody with a a lot of money cheated you out of what was yours. Maybe a spouse hurt you deeply. Or maybe it was a parent. Maybe a teacher or a person in authority, maybe they wounded you and the thought that they're going to get away with it eats away at you. And you've been carrying a grudge in your life against them, hoping for bad things to happen to them. It's chewing you away on the inside because you think it's unjust what they did and it seems like they got away scot-free. Friends, they're going to face judgment one day. God says, the day is coming when I will come in power and I will set things right. And every person who is wounded, every person who is hated, every person who has defied God's law of love, all those horrible and horrendous things that bother us so deeply, all those things that we've thought they're going to get away with, one day, God will come. One day, God will set everything right. Therefore, as Paul said, do not take revenge into your own hands. As I said, I know some of you have been hurt and you've been carrying resentment around. God is saying to you, the day is coming when the ancient of days is going to take the throne and justice will rule. Therefore, you need to let it go. For your sake, You need to release it. For God's sake, he calls us to forgive. Be reconciled if you can. Paul says, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Do everything you can to reconcile, to be in unity. Obviously, that we're called to live for justice and to work for justice here on earth. But vengeance, 
revenge? A bitter or resentful spirit? No. That doesn't have any place in our spiritual journey. It doesn't have any place in pursuing spiritual excellence. You and I can't handle it. Our spirits within us can't handle it. You and I can't take ultimate justice into our own hands. But one day, justice is coming. One day, the Ancient of Days will be sitting in his throne. Well, let's get back to Daniel 7 in verse 9. It says, His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool picture of God, the ancient of days. This is a picture of God's purity, the white. This is common image throughout Scripture in Isaiah 1, 18. God says, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Boy, there's another really important implication for us here too. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in heart, pure in heart, for they will see God. In 1 John 3, 3, it says, and all who have this eager expectation, this expectation that one day God is going to come back and set everything right, for all who have this expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. I want to ask you a tough question this morning. Are you willing to go through the difficult process that is often involved in purification and allowing yourself to be pure? Let me ask it this way. Is there anything in your life that needs to be purified? I don't know. Maybe it involves your finances. Maybe you've been involved in financial practices and you know they're wrong. Maybe it's about truth-telling. Maybe for you this involves problems in the area of sexuality. Maybe there's a cynical spirit in you and you've just been tolerating it and you've been letting it go unchecked for a long time. Maybe there's an attitude of judgmentalness in your heart towards others. I don't know, what is it for you that needs to be cleaned up? What do you need to acknowledge to God and maybe to some other person to set it right, to be pure? I'm asking you, in the context of a God who loves you, if you're willing to face the hard issues in your life. Here's the goal. We just read it all who have this eager expectation to stay with God and to live with God throughout eternity need to keep themselves pure just as he is pure. I love this. Listen to what Daniel figured out. Daniel figured this out and he wrote it in Daniel 9.9. He said, but the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him, even though we're unpure, even though we've done things against his purity, he is merciful and forgiving. 1 John 1.9 says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we confess our sins, if we acknowledge the impurities in our life, then God will cleanse us from those impurities and he will make us pure. That is our hope in Christ. That is the good news of Christianity. That is the message of the gospel. That God loves us and will cleanse us of our impurities. In verses 9 and 10 in Daniel chapter 7, he goes on to talk about another aspect of God. He says he is a... Let's 
sorry, verse 9. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Fire is an image in scripture of God's power. God's power. The writer of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. God is not tame. He's not safe. He is an awesome, powerful God. And I want you to see and I want you to understand how great and how awesome God's power is. Let's look at verse 11 from chapter 7 in Daniel. It says, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So get this picture. Here's this great beast, right? Daniel says it has large iron teeth. It has 10 horns. It's terrifying and it's frightening and we know it's very powerful. And we might expect this to be this great big knockdown fight between this beast and God, between this horrible, huge beast and God. And they're going to have this, they're going to have this all out knockdown fight, right? That's how we would do it if we were making a movie, They'd wrestle around and throw each other against the different walls. I think sometimes, too, when we think about spiritual warfare, that's how we picture it. But notice what happened in verse 11. Right? Here's this very frightening, very powerful beast. And Daniel looks at it and he says, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed. See, all of a sudden, God snaps his fingers and it's no contest. It's no contest between God and this powerful beast. You see, God is an infinite God. His power is not challenged by any force in the universe. God allows the spiritual struggles in this world to go on because it's his desire that people should freely choose to turn to him. That's exactly what Peter writes about in 2 Peter Oops, I skipped over a point. You were right. The Lord, let's go back here. Here's lesson two. God wins. Right, our first lesson from this text was that we're going to encounter problems and struggles. The second lesson we need to understand from this text is God wins. God wins. God is all-powerful over the forces of this world as well as over the forces in our life that keep us in bondage, and that keep us struggling. God wins. And he's not slow in winning the ultimate battle. Listen to what Peter says. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, his promise to come, his promise to set everything right, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to believe in him. He wants everybody to come into a relationship and to avail themselves of what Christ did on the cross. We live in the day of God's patience. And so the world goes on. But let me encourage you, do not grow indifferent. Once God, once he decides that the struggle is over, once he decides that the opportunity for decision is done and the time for judgment has come, he is not going to need a long time or he's not going to need to use a lot of firepower to win this final battle. It's not going to be a long struggle, friends. God is infinite. He holds all power. When God says it's over, it'll be over. And one day it will be. And God wins. God wins. Finally, as we begin to wrap up, Daniel says in verse 13, and we'll look at the whole text in a minute, but he says, And I saw one like the Son of Man coming from the clouds. Do you know who that is? If those words sound familiar, it's because they're the ones Jesus quoted in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13 when he tells us what's going to happen at the end of the age when he returns. 
In fact, this is the passage where Jesus got the phrase, the Son of Man, that he uses more than any other phrase to refer to himself. Daniel's going to close out this vision and he's going to leave us with a scene of worship of this never-ending, glorious kingdom of the Son of Man. And I could think of no better way to, to wrap up this series that we've been talking about in pursuing spiritual excellence than in joining in this context of worship by taking communion together and celebrating the forgiveness and the healing that is available to us because of Christ's love and because of his sacrifice. In just a moment, in preparation for communion, I want to read to you the last of our two verses, verses 13 and 14. But before we read those, I want you to think for a moment about Daniel again. He's coming to the end of his life. He's around 80 years old. We have followed his life together now for a couple months. And we have seen as a young man, he had such hopes like any young man does and and dreams for a wonderful life. And yet nothing turned out like he had planned. His country was defeated in battle. He was carried off into exile as we've talked about. He would never again return home. He would never be able to worship at the temple. He would never be able to be with his people back at home again. He'd never again be able to look on the land that he loved. So far as we know, he never got married. As far as we know, he never had children. But in this strange, faraway, hostile place, what an adventure that Daniel had with his God. What an amazing experience of God's presence and God's power in his life. And yet what horrible, frightening moments that he experienced. What long periods of being discarded and forgotten by those in power, the very same people that he had served so faithfully. But as amazing as his life was, that wasn't his ultimate hope. Daniel's hope was not about his life. It wasn't about his strength. It wasn't about his cleverness. It wasn't about his spiritual firepower. Daniel's ultimate vision was what's going to take place in the future. Listen to these words from Daniel as you prepare to take communion. It says, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and he was led into his presence. He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and every nation and every language would obey him. His eternal rule, it will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling discouraged. I don't know, maybe you're feeling overwhelmed and maybe you're feeling confused about all of this. I don't know, maybe you're on the top of your game. Maybe everything is going really well for you. But either way, if you feel guilty or weak or inadequate, in the context of who God is, it doesn't matter. For the Jesus who loves you, the Jesus who died for you, the Jesus who rose from the dead, he's coming back again. He's coming back again. He will return. We don't know when, but we know that he will. And that's his promise. That's his promise to you, and that's his promise to me. As we prepare to take communion, in a moment the ushers will come forward and they'll pass some trays and there'll be bread and there'll be a cup of juice. And these represent Christ. They represent the love that Christ has for you and for me. They represent the sacrifice that God made so that the struggles that we encounter in this life will not be the end. They represent the power and the freedom we have to walk in purity. See, Jesus took our righteousness, which was his filthy rags, and he gives us his righteousness. I want to invite you as you take the bread and as you cup and as you, as you hold it, I want you to think about this ancient of days. I want you to think about the Son of Man coming in all his glory for you to take you into his arms 
I want your mind to be full of the encouragement that God wins so that you can get through the struggles and the difficulties that you're facing. And nothing proclaims that God wins more than communion. Jesus said, as often as you get together, celebrate communion until one day when he comes back. And then we get to celebrate it with him, a feast with him in heaven. That's our hope. That's our promise. If you're at a place this morning and you prefer not to take communion, that's fine. When the tray comes to you, feel free to pass it on to the person next to you. But know this morning, God loves you. Pray with me, please. Father, just coming into your presence and thinking about your glory, meditating on your awesomeness. What a wonderful, wonderful privilege, God, that you have revealed to us that you love us, that you love us so much that you gave yourself to die for us. God, I pray for your comfort and your peace and everyone who is here this morning. God, may you give them the faith to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup, to proclaim you as their Lord, to proclaim you as their coming King. Father, would you bring healing and health and restoration into their life? God, would you wash all of us in your blood and give us the purity that we need to enjoy the awesome day of the Lord? Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.